You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. invite you to turn to Acts chapter 19. We're going to look at verse 11 through 41 this morning. We continue working chapter by chapter through the, the book of Acts. And so we're going to find here Paul and his ministry in Ephesus. So let me read for us Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord, Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. 
And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and, and Aristarchus. Macedonians were Paul's companions in travel, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with them have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray, Lord, we long to see a work of the outpouring of your Holy Spirit that might lead to so many people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, that the world itself would riot in protest. Father, we pray, Lord, that we might see such an awakening among our people, among this city. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you would use the preaching of your word to help us to think carefully about the power of the gospel and how no one can oppose our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So human beings are remarkably creative, particularly when it comes to entertaining themselves. So admittedly, I have little interest with keeping up with sports nowadays, if you know me. Uh, and particularly due to COVID-19, you know, I've got an excuse to be ignorant about much of that kind of stuff. But I recently discovered a new phenomenon in the athletic world I did not know about. Apparently it's a new thing, and the sport is called competitive slapping. Have you heard about this? All right, the sport originated in Russia. Sounds like something Russians might come up with. Right? And it involves two burly men sitting across the table from each other. And they look at each other and they stare at each other with a sort of ferocious intimidation. And then they go back and forth and they slap each other with every ounce of strength that they have with the goal of either knocking the guy out or forcing him to tap out of the competition. So it's pretty fascinating to, to think about what human beings are capable of entertaining themselves with, but Russian men have fun at this. 
They have fun this sort of competitive slapping at one another. And in America, I think even though this sport hasn't quite caught on, I think in a lot of ways as you look at American culture, we're in our own form of competitive slapping, aren't we? That the culture wars that we are currently experiencing often feel like this forever battle of one side trying to hit the other side in order to try to knock the other side out, almost as if we're going back and forth, slapping one another across the face. And in this process, there have been no winners, just, just losers, of course, and a stinging, blistering face to go along with it. And often, the church has found itself right in the middle of this sort of competitive cultural war. And, and those such efforts from the church, though, though they are good intended to, to engage in the culture war, whenever the church tends to go militant, she tends to sully her reputation in the process. Take, take a quick survey throughout church history, right? Think about Constantine making Christianity the official legal religion of the Roman Empire. Or think about the Crusades of Christians, thousands of which marched to the Middle East for conquest. Think about the Scopes trial back in 1925, which led to the embarrassment of fundamentalism. Or think about the many Christians today who place unrestrained hopes in the upcoming election of our next commander-in-chief. You see, whenever the church tends to live by the sword, she ends up dying by the sword in the process. Meaning that whenever the church equips herself with the weapon of political authority, she ends up hurting herself, doesn't she? Like David in Saul's armor, the church is far more effective when she casts aside the heaven weaponry of political power and instead opts for the nimbleness of life and the spirit. So in Acts chapter 19, what we see here is a revival that takes place in the city of Ephesus. This is a moment, a movement of gospel awakening in this city. And as we look at what happens in Ephesus, we see that, that there's this transformation that happens in the city. Uh, a revolution, if you will. There's this gospel revolution that happens, and it actually begins to affect the culture of the city of Ephesus. It brings incredible change. And so today, we might feel exhausted from our own competitive slapping here in America in this unending cultural war. But as we look at Ephesus, I want to look at this passage, and I want to see what we learn about how the gospel actually overcomes and disrupts competing powers. So here's the, the summary. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel overcomes and disrupts competing powers. The gospel overcomes and disrupts competing powers. Of course, first this morning, we're going to think through how the gospel overcomes those competing powers. We see that in verse 11 through 20. So as Paul's ministry continues in Ephesus, we see that Luke tells us that he is performing extraordinary miracles. Extraordinary miracles. But yet Luke emphasizes that it's not Paul doing the miracles, it's God doing the miracles by the hands of Paul. God was acting 
through Paul. So extraordinary events were taking place. So much so that even the, the handkerchiefs or, or aprons that, that Paul had touched were being used to, to heal the sick and perform exorcisms in the city. Again, as we think about the book of Acts, we have to remind ourselves that the book of Acts is descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. This text isn't telling us that at Redemption Church, when you start taking up a, a handkerchief ministry, that's not what it's arguing or encouraging us to do. We ought not to expect some sort of miraculous activity as normal in the life of the church. After all, miracles are abnormal. They happen infrequently. That's why they're called miracles, aren't they? And so, let alone should the church be expecting or demanding God to always act in miraculous ways. God acts as he decides he will act. But when we understand the culture of the city of Ephesus, and when we understand who Paul is trying to preach the gospel to here, it begins to make sense a little bit why God might have chosen to have Paul's ministry in Ephesus be accompanied with so many miraculous healings and exorcisms. You see, the, the city of Ephesus was known for the magnificent temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the Ephesians believed that the statue of Artemis actually fell out of heaven, and then they built the temple around it. So Artemis was often connected in, in Greco-pagan worship. It was often connected with, with fertility. In a lot of ways, Artemis was considered the mother goddess. And so because of the, the prestige of Artemis in the Greco-Roman pantheon, Ephesus became the center of the occult and pagan worship in the Roman Empire. So remember back in Athens, Paul was preaching there, and there we saw the, the gospel challenge the, the phony philosophies of the Greek philosophers. But in Ephesus, we see the gospel is challenging the rival religion of Greek paganism. And while Paul is ministering in the city of Ephesus, God performs extraordinary miracles in order to demonstrate the power of Christ over the occult. And so while Paul is laboring in word and miracles, we see that there are some Jewish itinerant exorcists. That sounds like quite a job description, doesn't it? But apparently these were traveling exorcists. And these Jewish exorcists would often use Hebrew spells or incantations in order to try to cast out demons. And so these charlatans kind of traveled from place to place, and often they would borrow other names to do their, their spells in in order to try to, to, to be effective. And so they hear about Paul, they hear about this healing ministry, they hear about these exorcisms that are being done by Paul in the name of Jesus, and so they get an idea. They decide, well, let's, let's invoke the name of Jesus ourselves. And so they say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And so the sons of Siva attempt to do just that. They think that they can exert power over the evil spirits by invoking the name of Jesus. And they do that only to be met by a demonic question. Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? 
And then the possessed man then leaped on the sons of Siva, mastered them, Luke says, and overpowered them. And the seven sons of Siva ran out of the house naked and wounded. Now, I have no experience with this fight. But if the fight ends with you running away naked and wounded, you have probably lost. As Alistair Begg calls these guys, he calls them the seven streakers of Siva. Now, I think there's a lesson here as we look at these foolish guys. The name of Jesus is not a spell to invoke. Is it? You can't, you can, you can try to claim to have spiritual power, and you could even attempt to have that spiritual power by, by invoking Jesus' name, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have any spiritual power, does it? You see, Jesus is not a, a verbal sprinkle that you add to your personal demands. Nor is the name of Jesus some sort of magical incantation. And so the name it and claim it commands offered in Jesus' name, often by the church, often have no more power in them than the sons of Siva trying to cast out a demon. You see, Jesus is a person, not a spell. The Lord Jesus will choose to act or not act based on his sovereign choice. So spiritual imposters will seek to use Jesus' name for personal advantage and prestige. And when people tend to use Jesus' name for that, guess what? There is no spiritual power. Spiritual power is given to the humble, to the repentant, to the faithful, and to the obedient. Those who are reliant upon the grace of God to empower their ministry. So as you look at the church today, doesn't, doesn't there seem to be such a, a lack of spiritual power? And you think, why, why is that the case? Well, I, I wonder, perhaps we, like the sons of Siva, seek to use Jesus to endow ourselves with power over others. And as we clamor around and try to amass as much authority and power over people, I think in a lot of ways the Powers of darkness look at us. They ask that menacing question, but who are you? Who are you? So the news of the the, the seven streaking sons of Siva spread throughout all of Ephesus. Everyone begins to hear what had taken place. This evil spirit acknowledged the authority of Jesus. Plus, Paul was was working these extraordinary miracles that everybody was talking about, and he was performing those miracles in the name of Jesus. And through Paul's ministry, Jesus was proving himself far greater, far more powerful, far more supreme than the occult, than Artemis, than the Greek pantheon. And soon, as people began to hear about the greatness of Christ, people began to to, to repent. They began to believe soon revival was, was brewing in the city of Ephesus, as Luke tells us, that many people came to extol the name of Jesus. I love that word, extol. It means to, to make great, to glorify, to exalt someone with high honor and with high praise. You see, there is a change here that begins to happen in the Ephesians. 
And it begins to happen on a mass scale. There is a recognition of the greatness of Jesus. But you see, Luke is trying to help us understand that this recognition of Jesus, this is not just intellectual assessments. This isn't just the Ephesians comparing which, which one is better, Jesus or the occult. No, there, there is joy in their realization that Jesus is greater. They are waking up from their idolatry. They are waking up from their pagan religion, and as they are, their hearts are swelling in praise and adoration so that they are extolling the name of Jesus. And so praise begins to to flow out of them like a flood as the power of Christ blows up the dam of their idolatry. And so praise just starts coming, and they're extolling, and they're exalting, and they're magnifying the name of Jesus. So how do we know when God is bringing revival to a particular people or to a particular place? And for one thing, we know that revival can't be planned. You can't schedule it. You can't put it on a calendar. The wind blows where it wishes, and so it is with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is wild. And he doesn't often act according to our timeline or our expectations. But when he acts in a massive way, in a community, revival comes. Revival comes. And Ephesus helps us know one of the marks of a true revival. You know what that is? It's when large amounts of people within a short period of time have their hearts come alive with joy over the eternal honor and worth of Christ. There's this joyous recognition of the magnificence of Jesus among a great number of people in a short period of time. Uh, A spiritual awakening is this sort of supernatural seeing that the Spirit of God begins to open the eyes of of people in a particular community to realize that, that what they're living for day by day is ultimately worthless. It's worthless. It's not good. There is a change that happens by the Spirit of God that when people begin to look upon their idols, they realize that they're rubbish. These things that they treasured, these things that they valued and worked for and invested in, and then people begin to say, I don't want that anymore. It is rubbish. It's junk. I can't believe I ever wasted my time thinking and giving myself such garbage idols now that I know Jesus, I found something better. I found that pearl of great price. I found the one who truly deserves my joy and who truly deserves my worship, who truly deserves my love, and his name is Jesus. So I will extol the the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the fruit of true revival. And so if you want to know if what you're seeing in a person's heart is revival, or what you're seeing in a local church is revival, or what you're seeing in a movement of churches in a particular region, if you want to know if that's revival, ask yourself this. Is the name of Jesus being extolled? Is the name of Jesus being extolled? Are they delighting in Jesus? Are they acting and moving out of love for Jesus? Is there a forsaking of the world and a clinging to Christ? Is the name of Jesus being exalted in their life? You see, that's what what happened when revival began to break out in Ephesus. And not just one person, 
that we see large numbers of people come to recognize the magnificence of Jesus within a short period of time. So revival broke out, and there's this massive awakening that begins to engulf this whole city of Ephesus. And so those who believed in Jesus, Luke says, they took all of their books of magic about the occult and their paganism, and they took all their accessories for their dark practices, and they bring them out and they burn them publicly for all to see. You see, the, the Ephesian book burning, this isn't some attempt at censorship. Now, this is something altogether different. This is an act of repentance. You see, the Ephesian Christians, awakened by the Spirit of God, begin to realize that all this stuff that they've spent their money on, all these magic books and guides to, to paganism, they realize that they're rubbish, they're foolishness. And so rather than just selling them on Craigslist or on Facebook Marketplace, they say, no, these things need to be destroyed. I'm not going to profit off of these things, these things that are idols, these things that have ruined my life. Now that I've seen Christ, I'm going to destroy them. And so the text says that they gathered them all, and the Ephesian Christians start burning them in repentance. And the, the text says the value of them came to around 50,000 pieces of silver. This is one of the reasons why we know this is an a awakening in the city, a mass number of people, because it is estimated today to be around four to five million dollars that they burned in the streets. Wow. And so the Ephesian Christians bring them out and throw their junk in a pile and they light it on fire. And the burning of the magic books is this act of repudiation. And they're saying, do you, do you see this books? Do you see these books? Do you see how much we've squandered our money and our time obsessing over accumulating this garbage? Well, let me tell you, it's nothing but rubbish found a treasure far more better. So now I extol the name of Jesus. So I will gladly throw my books in the pile. I'll gladly set them ablaze and let the heat from the flames demonstrate the affection that I now have for the Lord Jesus Christ. And let the smoke that rises from the heat from my repentance be like the joy in my heart that's now rising to the Lord. And so he tells us, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily in the city of Ephesus. And may we, may we pray that the Lord would bring this sort of revival within our generation. May the Lord see it fit to bring this display of spiritual power in our lands, to unleash a, a spiritual awakening upon our hearts and upon this idolatrous land of America in which we live. And may we become so overwhelmed as Christians with the power and the supremacy of Christ over every competing idol that we too would join with the Ephesian Christians in their awakening and repent of any former way of life that was contrary to life in Christ. And then we repent of it, often in costly ways, so that we can make it clear to the world and to our hearts that we now extol in the name of Jesus. See, when the gospel begins to take root in your heart like that, and when the gospel begins to take root in many other hearts like that, with such intensity and with such immediacy, we begin to see revival. And the gospel that overcomes these spiritual powers of idols and darkness and the demonic 
This same gospel is the one that often disrupts competing cultural powers. That leads to our second point this morning. The gospel disrupts competing cultural powers. So after this, Luke begins to tell us in verse 21 and following that, that Paul begins to make plans to eventually go to Rome, and he sends off two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to, to aid the churches in Macedonia. But Paul is continuing for now his ministry in the Asia Minor region. Ephesus was kind of like his hub that he was launching out, doing ministry throughout the whole region. And so the Lord sparked this gospel awakening in Ephesus, and Luke goes on to put it that there was no little disturbance concerning the way. Christian movement was often called the way in its early decades. And so there is no little disturbance, meaning there was becoming a big disturbance that was happening in the city of Ephesus. The Christian church, as people were coming to know Christ with such number and intensity, it was beginning to disrupt the city. And this disruption would lead to a city-wide riot and protest about what was happening. You see, a gospel awakening in people's hearts will often disrupt all those competing cultural powers in our society. And often that response is, is violent and hysterical, as we see here in the case of Ephesus. So let me highlight just four ways from this text that the gospel disrupts our culture, the first of which is economic disruption in verse 21 through 26. So we hear about this guy named Demetrius. Demetrius had made a profitable business for himself. He was an idol maker, gathered his fellow tradesmen together, and with all these new Christians that had come up and they're burning books in the streets and they're repenting of their former ways, the whole idol-making industry was collapsing because so many Christians were now repenting of their idolatry. So Demetrius argued that, that this is the Christian's fault. This is Paul's fault. This is the Christian movement had created this economic disruption. And look at the extent of it. Demetrius says, this isn't just a problem in Ephesus, but it's a problem in the whole region, which shows you how widespread this gospel awakening was in the Asia Minor region. So imagine for a moment, imagine for a moment that so many people converted to Christ and began to extol Christ in our country that whole industries begin to see their revenue evaporate just overnight. Imagine if the billions made every year by the porn industry goes away as Americans stop bowing down to the idol of sexuality. Imagine if there were no demand for, for Hollywood's latest sensual offerings and people stop bowing down to the idols of entertainment in our culture. Imagine if everyone stopped taking out new lines of credit cards to buy junk that they don't need because now everyone is content in the Lord Jesus Christ as their treasure and people stop bowing down to the idol of materialism. Imagine what sort of chaos might begin to manifest itself in our society if people repented in such great number that these industries were actually disrupted. Yet when Christ becomes your Lord, your financial habits change. You're different. And when enough people become Christian at the same time, like they did in Ephesus, the whole economy of the city can find itself disrupted faster than you can say COVID-19. And so has the gospel brought disruption to your spending, to your budget, to your financial priorities? 
We also see that oftentimes there is religious disruption in verse 27. So it's, this is interesting, right? As Demetrius pleads his case, he's not merely concerned about the economics of his business. That's definitely part of it. But he's also increasingly concerned that his profession will be considered with dishonor and that his religious devotion is being challenged. Look at what he says in verse 27, he charged. And, and there is a danger, not only this trait of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the, whole, and the world worship. Now, now, the word magnificence here in verse 27 is a play on the word extol in the original language. You see, with Jesus being magnified, with Jesus being extolled, Demetrius is concerned that, that his goddess that he worships, Artemis, would be deposed of her magnificence, no longer extolled among the Ephesians. You see, Demetrius is tragically wrong about his idolatry, but he is right about something. And I think he understands this point better than most. That when Christ is magnified, idols lose their luster. When a gospel awakening comes upon a people, all other competing religions in a culture begin to decline. You see, the whole Ephesian cultic system was coming undone, and idolaters were getting offended not only that their business interests were being interrupted, but their God is now being dethroned in the culture of the city. So has the gospel brought religious disruption to your worship? There's a third sort of disruption we see the gospel bring to cultural powers, and this one is patriotic disruption. Verse 28 through 34. After Demetrius' speech, the crowd became enraged. Demetrius riled them up. They began to form this lynch mob. And so the crowd began to shout, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Notice the, the phrase here. Artemis of the Ephesians. And so they dragged Gaius and Aristarchus, two of Paul's Macedonian companions, into the theater. And Paul was eager to want to go in and try to defuse the mob. But, but his friends just said, Paul, it's too dangerous. You can't go in there. The mob had grown so large, so unwieldy at this point, that some people just began to get sucked up into the confusion, unsure why everyone was rioting in the first place. And so the Jews put forward this guy named Alexander to try to disassociate the Jewish people from the Christians. That was the reason he was put forward, by the way. But when they saw that he was Jewish, they became even more enraged, calling out with continuing voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesian. They went on for hours. Now, why did a riot form? That's a good question. Why were so many Ephesians swept up in this mob? mob? Well, I, there's economic disruption. That's part of it. There's religious disruption. That's definitely part of it. Those are two factors. But there's also this factor of political disruption. The gospel not only threatened their religious identity, but the gospel is also threatening their cultural identity. You see, what bound the city of Ephesus together in their patriotism and their love for their city was the shared love that they had for Artemis. The temple was what they were known for. It was the glue that held together their country and their, their city. 
And so what bound the city of Ephesus together was Artemis. Her temple was their great claim to fame. And now the Christian movement was beginning to undo what had made Ephesus Ephesus. Now, it's good to have a love for country. It's good to have a love for your people. But a gospel awakening will often disrupt people's political allegiances and identity. After all, a Christian is first and foremost a citizen of heaven. And so as Christians, we are people who first find our identity not in our earthly citizenship, but in our heavenly citizenship. We are people who belong to the kingdom of God. And even though we appreciate our national citizenship, it takes a backseat compared to our heavenly citizenship. Amen. And Jesus said the gospel does this sort of stuff, doesn't it? It disrupts the bonds even of family. You remember Jesus' words? Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against his, her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Remember that from Matthew chapter 10? And so if the gospel disturbs the bonds of family, we shouldn't be surprised when the gospel pits Japanese versus Japanese or Brazilian against Brazilian. And yes, even American against American. You see, a gospel awakening disrupts the patriotic unity that binds a city, that binds a state, that binds a nation. And so has the gospel brought patriotic disruption to your citizenship? And then finally we see here further political disruptions. With the riot at the brink of explosion that the town clerk diffused the crowd, and political disruption was at stake. And this would have not just been a problem for the city of Ephesus, but it was a problem for the city of Rome. You see, the Romans dealt with riots pretty swiftly, pretty immediately, pretty violently. And so the town clerk is finally able to get up in front of everybody and try to, to talk them down and to encourage them to go through proper legal channels if they've got an offense and to, to not result in rioting. And so breaking on the brink of a political disaster in Ephesus, the town clerk sends everyone home. And of course, just as the gospel disrupts our patriotism, so do will put a strain on government and politics. A gospel awakening will have many opponents. And those opponents can create unrest, violence, and persecution against God's people. So has the gospel brought political disruption to your country? Well, that leads me to help us think through an important question. How does the gospel actually change a culture? How does it actually change a community? How does it actually change a nation? That's a big question. As we've seen in the Ephesian awakenings, that the gospel certainly has the power of overcoming competing spiritual powers, but the gospel also has the power to compete cultural and political and societal powers as well. So as gospel people, we have to ask ourselves a question. As we're engaged in what feels like this competitive slot battle with one another in America, these cultural wars, what does Acts chapter 19 teach us? about how 
The Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel brings change to a community, to a city, yes, even to a nation. I think there are two important principles here that we have to keep in mind that I think many Christians often forget. First, cultural reform begins in individual hearts. It begins in individual hearts. You see, spiritual movements like we're seeing here in Ephesus didn't start because Paul decided to go to the city council and start a gospel initiative in the city. It's not the way it worked. Spiritual movements happen from the bottom up. And this is something we have to remember as Christians, right? A law from Congress cannot change anyone's heart. No political party nor any politician will ever usher in revival. So Christians have to stop looking for a Messiah in Washington when God has already given us his son. A movement of gospel awakening begins in the hearts of God's people, in his church, not the ivory tower of the Washington Brigade. And so in Ephesus, isn't this fascinating? In Ephesus, Paul's not even trying to change the culture of the city. He's not doing anything to try to instigate that. He's just simply focused on preaching the gospel to the people there. And he's preaching the gospel with miracles and with words, but that's his focus. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching Jesus as God, as Messiah. And as God began to work through that preaching of the gospel, many people began to know Jesus in an extraordinary way. And it was the transformation of individual hearts that produced the revival, that produced the change in the culture. You see, a large amount of Ephesians came to know Christ. And Paul had no political agenda other than preaching Christ. You see, cultural reform and change begins with the miracle of God's grace that we call the new birth. So one of the things I think we can take away, cultural reform begins in individual hearts, which means that particularly as a church, that ought to be our focus and priority as we minister. Getting the gospel to bear on people's hearts and praying the Lord would save sinners and that there might be a revival that comes the Holy Spirit. Second, we have to remember this, that people changed by the gospel live in culturally disruptive ways. If you really have been changed by Christ, you've been saved by grace, then your life ought to look differently. Your values are different. And so what made Ephesus so volatile and led to this riot was the sheer number of people that were converted all at the same time, all within a small time frame. You see, by all measure, we can call it one of the great spiritual awakenings in the history of the Christian church, what's happening here in Ephesus. A spiritual awakening is a divine intensification of God's ordinary means of grace that lead to a rapid number of people coming to know the Lord in a short period of time. And when that happens... People are saved by Jesus, and people are transformed by Jesus. They repent of their sins, and if Jesus changes the hearts, enough hearts in a particular culture, in a particular city, in a particular nation, then the culture begins to change. That's the way it happens. As as the Christian conscience begins to grow in number in a society, the voice of biblical thinking will begin to slowly but surely change the seats of power and authority 
in a culture. And yes, that means Christians will begin to enter into politics, into institutions, into organizations that often produce cultural change. Of course, the struggle today that we feel, even now in 2020, is that we find ourselves as Christians in America in an era of spiritual decline, where we feel and where we sense our influence fading in the culture. But listen carefully, I want to suggest humbly that the answer to that is not to grip onto cultural mechanisms of power with white-knuckled stubbornness, but to plead to the Lord Jesus Christ for spiritual renewal within the church and to work as hard as we can to preach the gospel to as many people as we can. Amen. That's what we ought to invest ourselves in. Praying that the Lord will bring change as people's hearts are changed. So may the Lord do this transformation that we long to see in our country and our culture and our world. May that change first and foremost be evident in your heart and in my heart. May we live in such a way that it makes clear to the watching world that you and I, as Redemption Church, as people who have confessed Christ, that we have forsaken the worthless idols. We have forsaken it. We, we have now chosen with our lives to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his name that we extol. And though there are so many challenges today, in our country and in our world that we as Christians long to see change. May God do that work, but may we first go to our knees and plead to the Lord to bring a gospel awakening to our own hearts, to our church, to our city, and to our country, and ultimately to our world. Because the good news that we've seen here in Ephesus is that the Lord has no competing rivals. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. And Father, we're grateful for this account of spiritual awakening that took place in the city of Ephesus. And Lord, as we look upon our society, as we look about how much of American culture is engulfed in idolatry and sin, Father, we long to see our culture change. We long to see our culture want to extol the name of Christ. And Father, Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would first and foremost examine our own hearts. Lord, we pray, Lord, that that we would, with our lives, with our actions, Lord, that we would display that Christ is the one we extol. He is the one we would magnify. And Lord, that even we as Christians would engage in costly repentance, Lord, that we would be holy as you are holy. And so, Lord, showcase to the world the surpassing value of Christ above all competing treasures. So, Father, we long to see this work. Lord, we long to see spiritual renewal and revival. And, Lord, we know that we are dependent upon you and your sovereignty to bring about this awakening. Lord, we know we can't just use your name as a magic spell to make you work. But Lord, we can plead in prayer, coming before you, Lord, knowing that you are a father who gives good gifts to your children. Lord, that you are a father who listens to our cries for help. And Lord, we pray that in our church, in our city, in our country, in our world, that there might be an awakening of the gospel. That people would be saved in such great quantity 
Lord, that our cultural institutions can't help but change. Father, we long to see this change happen. And Father, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. And Lord, we pray that she would be glorified in Wilson, North Carolina, in the United States of America, or that you would be glorified around the world, and that the nations would be glad and sing for joy, extolling the greatness of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.